This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Mary Doria Russell, author of five novels, including The Sparrow, A Thread of Grace, and Doc. Thread of Grace and Doc were nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. Mary Doria Russell is known for her diversity. The Sparrow is about a Jesuit mission to outer space to explore an extraterrestrial civilization and deals with questions of faith and humanity. A Thread of Grace is a historical novel about Italian resistance to the Germans in World War II and the efforts to protect the Jews in a small coastal town. And her latest, Doc, is historical fiction about Doc Holliday. So let's begin with talking about The Sparrow. I've read that book twice, and I was so fascinated by your knowledge of anthropology and linguistics and how you used it in the book. And I'm curious about your interest in those topics and how that brought you to writing. The interest in the in in anthropology started. Um, oh, I guess I could trace it back to seeing the movie Lawrence of Arabia in 1962. I was 12 years old, and um, <clears throat> like like many baby boomers, I was really strongly affected by that movie. And I'm I'm not entirely certain why it got to so many of us at, at that age, but uh, I think it it um, for me it opened up a wider world. It um, made me think in terms of an international life rather than one that was bounded by L- Lombard, Illinois, which is where I grew up. Uh, and I became very interested in Lawrence, and he was an archaeologist, so I got interested in archaeology. He spoke many languages, so I started taking every opportunity in high school to, to learn as many languages as I could, and I've been accumulating them ever since. I did find out, however, that uh, archaeologists have to work outdoors. <laughs> And that had no appeal at all to me. Uh, so I finally ended up in uh, paleoanthropology, which is um, uh, stones and bones is the, the quick definition of that. Um, but along the way, um, I was uh, I was trained in all four, four fields, so linguistics, archaeology, social anthropology, and uh, biological anthropology. So it's a, uh, anthropology in general is a wonderful background for a novelist because so wide-ranging. If you're a curious person, that's a really good place for you to be. And so how did this interest in anthropology bring you to writing novels? Uh, unemployment. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I was teaching uh, human gross anatomy at the Case Western Reserve University School of Dentistry. And uh, in the mid-'80s, they ran out of baby boomers to educate, and they couldn't make up the difference with foreign students. And so in a cost-cutting measure, they dropped my entire department. <clears throat> it was the um, basic sciences uh, um, department in the, in the School of Dentistry, so physiology and anatomy and uh, biochem and that kind of thing. All that got dropped. The dental students now take all of those courses in the med school. Well, had you always had this writer inside of you? No. No, 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 no. Uh, you know, I I never 
thought of being a writer. I, I, writing was part of my job. Uh, you know, you have, to, you have to publish if you're an academic, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, and I have been a letter writer, or I had been until email. Um, so there was that kind of thing, but I never was one of those persons who, who said, I want to be a writer when I grow up. I wanted to be an anthropologist when I grew up. Um, so uh, I think there were there maybe two things that led to it. When you're doing paleoanthropology, there really is a sense of speaking for the dead. I had a, a great sense of connection with the the people who belonged, who owned the bones that I was studying 50,000 years later. Uh, and I, I felt a great sense of, of uh, connection with them and a need to express what their lives were like, to understand them as human beings and not just as specimens. With writing, it really, it was kind of a goof. It was just an experiment. I have always been a passionate reader. And at the age of about 40, it's, it finally occurred to me that I was not required to finish every book that I got out of the library, that if it was poorly written or, you know, badly plotted or if I wasn't buying the, uh, the relationships, I didn't have to finish it. I became very analytical about why I would finish reading one, you know, what, what is it about this book that kept me up late? And what is it about this book that wound up face down on my night table on page 39 and I never picked it up again? Uh, so that kind of thing also interested me. And, um, when I lost my job, I uh, I started doing technical writing, but I had this idea. I wanted to try a short story. I just wanted to try a short story. I thought that it would make me a more appreciative reader if I saw how difficult, instead of being like a really snotty, critical, <laughs> you know, nasty reader, I wanted to see if I could become a more appreciative reader um, by trying this game and seeing how hard it was. To do. And so that short story developed into The Sparrow and Children of God. And the whole being a, a, a more appreciative reader thing completely backfired because now I'm even more critical and snotty about other people's writing. So, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's been really amazing to, to become a writer myself. Never expected it. So when you did sit down to write that short story that became The Sparrow and the Children of God, and your story is Jesuits who go into space in the future. Yes. And what what was the alighting moment for you to think about that as the plot? Well, um, uh, two things. First of all, um, I am very much aware of the long arc of history. For me, because I'm so rooted in prehistory, the continuities of human cultures and and behaviors are very interesting to me. Come back in 200 years, and some things are going to be the same. You know, there will we'll probably still be fighting over gun rights in the United States, um, and uh, uh, you will there will still be religion, uh, there will still be politics, there will still be war. You know, all of those things will remain part of human history because they're they're just part of the human species i think so um it it seemed uh, uh logical to me that there would still be jesuits you know okay the other part of this is that um i started writing the sparrow uh just by accident well no actually it was it was part of it um it was uh, 1991 it was the run-up to the 500th anniversary of columbus landing in the new world in in 1991 1992 was the actual anniversary and starting at the beginning of 
1991, there was all of this historical revisionism that was going on. Um, and people were uh, pointing out that uh, it, th this was not necessarily a happy occasion for the native peoples of, of these two continents, that uh, the, the landing of uh, Columbus in the New World was a catastrophe for them. And that was absolutely true. It was absolutely true. Um, at the same time as an anthropologist, I was also thinking, you know, these guys have been dead for for 500 years, or 470, say, um, and it's not fair to them to hold them to standards of appreciation for cultural diversity, you know, and uh, you know, and, and and political correctness that we are only paying lip service to now. Um, you know, cut these guys some slack. They thought they were going to Japan. The whole America thing was an accident. Um, and the reason that we have uh, appreciation for cultural diversity is we've seen what a what a catastrophe it was when Europeans during the Age of Discovery went over and took over a bunch of places. So um, I I wanted to put, you know, I thought somebody ought to write a story that would put modern, intelligent, well-educated, well-meaning people into the same position of radical ignorance that the early explorers and, and, and settlers and, and missionaries experienced in the New World. And let's just see how well we'd do. So that was the premise. It was to take people who wanted to get it right, who were not crazed, genocidal maniacs who came to rob and rape and pillage. These are people who are really trying to do it right. Um, and let's just, let's just put them in this position and see how well they do. So you know, I didn't really want to write that novel. I wanted to read that novel, but I, I couldn't get anybody else to volunteer. So I ended up trying it myself. I thought it was going to be a short story. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Mary Doria Russell, author of five novels, including The Sparrow, A Thread of Grace, and Doc. The Sparrow deals with issues of faith and humanity and religion. You converted to Judaism from Catholicism. Did you do that while you were writing The Sparrow? Yes, um, I had been uh, studying Judaism for, uh, we, we had been moving towards it uh, for some time, um, but I made a formal conversion uh, shortly after writing the homily for the funeral of uh, one of the Jesuits on the, the alien planet. Um, and uh, at that point, um, I, I went to my rabbi, the guy I had been uh, studying with for some time, and I said, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to do this. I am what I consider bilingual um, uh, religiously. I, I, I get it. I get both sides, but I am a Jew. Um, and so uh, the, the writing of the sparrow helped me um, both clarify my uh, um, my feelings and my thoughts about my natal religion, which was Catholicism, that's what I was brought up in. I came to a greater appreciation of it as, a, as an adult, but there was no question in my mind that I was, I was now a Jew. So I made the conversion uh, after writing that chapter. 
So did that conversion lead you to Thread of Grace? Yeah, absolutely. Thread of Grace, uh, I, had, uh, I was on tour for um, uh, Children of God, and I, I walked into a bookstore, and I saw this book called Benevolence and Betrayal, Five Italian Jewish Families Under Fascism. Uh, it's by Alexander Stile. Um, and at that point, you know, I was, I'm a Jew by choice. I am an Italian by heritage. And at, at that point, I didn't know there were Italian Jews. That's how dead ignorant I was when I started that book. I went, Italian Jews? I thought I was the only one. Um, so uh, I, I bought that book, which was about Italy during the Nazi occupation. And when I started reading, I was so ignorant that the only things I could have told you about Italy during the war were that Mussolini was a fascist and that Italy was Germany's ally for three, for, during the war. I didn't know that it was only for three years. Uh, and uh, I knew the names of big battles like Monte Cassino uh, because, because there were movies about them. That's all I knew. And so for me to do the research to pull together a, a book about Jewish survival in Nazi-occupied Italy was just thrilling and a privilege and stunning in so many different ways. What Stile says in Benevolence and Betrayal, what he documents, is that uh, um, 85% of the Jews of Italy survived the Holocaust. And that's the opposite of the, the survival. It's the highest survival rate in occupied Europe. And uh, because so many people know about the silence of Pope Pius XII, there's very little attention that's been paid to the fact that the, the ordinary clergy, priests and nuns and brothers, just stepped up to the plate. They really did amazing things. Uh, every single Jew, Jewish survivor that I interviewed, all of the interviews that I read, uh, all of the histories you hear over and over and over again, people will tell you that Father so-and-so helped me in my family. Uh, Sister so-and-so helped me in my family. They always had a member of the clergy who had been directly involved in saving them. And, you know, there's this huge conspiracy of priests and peasants that really were magnificent during the last two, last 20 months of the war. It was, it was astonishing. I'm interested, not exactly in how you get your ideas, because I know there's ideas everywhere, but what makes an idea rise to the level where you can't let it go and you want to pursue it as a novel idea? Well, it has to be something that I'm curious about. Often I have found that um, there's something that dates back to my childhood and something that I accepted without question um, in in childhood, that I then get interested in something, sparks it in adulthood, and I go, wait a minute, you know, what, what was that about? What I, I start thinking harder about something. So how did that lead into Doc, the story of Doc Holliday, a gambling dentist? Uh, you know, the easy answer uh, is uh, Val Kilmer. <laughs> you know, uh, who doesn't love Val Kilmer in Tombstone? It was a wonderful performance. It was terrific screenplay. With the Doc Holliday book, it was because uh, our local film society called me up and asked me if I would be willing to uh, choose a movie and um, introduce it and then lead a discussion afterwards. And uh, I um, chose Tombstone, of all things. I mean, it's a film society, so he was probably pretty much taken aback that I chose something like that. But I was really interested in how contemporary all the issues were. Um, the um, uh, Americans feeling uh, threatened by the Chinese, uh, women's rights, 
equal pay for equal work. Tombstone is is a, less than 30 miles from the Mexican border, and uh, gang warfare along the Mexican border was still, you know, that was that was live issue in 1881 as well. It's it's part of what led to the gunfight. So there were all these contemporary issues, and I wanted to explore those more. Uh, also, the issue of gun control and uh, and vice ordinances. So um, I read, I started reading biographies of both Wyatt and, and Doc in order to be able to lead the discussion. Uh, what hooked me on Doc was that he was born with a cleft palate and a cleft lip in 1851. His uncle performed the first cleft palate and cleft lip surgical repair in, on, the, uh, on the North American continent. It had been done in Europe previously, but it was the first time that was done here. And uh, John Henry Holiday and his mother was so close. It was such a, such a close relationship. Once you start learning about the man's childhood, you understand where he's coming from. Then the interpretation of the rest of his life is very, very different. Most people start with the gunfight, and they just assume that he was a psychotic killer, and that's just completely inaccurate. That's what drew me in. I, I, I felt the need to tell his story accurately and compassionately and to earn him the respect that I think he deserves. And was it hard to separate the man from some of the legend? I mean, how did when you were conducting your research, did you find things that weren't accurate? And how did you how did you oh, know? almost everything is inaccurate? Um, the the one biography that I consider that that I hold as the gold standard was written by Karen Holiday Tanner. Uh, she is a member of the family. She uh, had access to family documents and family memoirs, which had never been uh, published or made public before. In the South to this day, people don't talk about birth defects. Uh, and I've heard this from a pediatric surgeon who has corrected a lot of, of cleft palates in Georgia. And they still it's still something you don't talk about. Um, so it was not until Karen Holiday Tanner published her biography in 2001 that it was revealed that he had been born with a birth defect and that cleft palates and cleft lips have shown up in the family generation after generations. Until that time, until she published her biography, people were even getting the date wrong of when he was uh, born. I mean, just, just basic facts were wrong because the family didn't want to talk about him. So now that all of that had been cleared up. And she went back and checked every single allegation of shootings and, you know, uh, arrests and everything. She went to each one of the um, uh, the towns where these allegations were made. She went back over every all the court records and the newspaper archives and stuff. She said that there's a possibility that there was one other man that he killed before the gunfight at the O.K. Corral. The only one we're absolutely certain of is that he killed Tom McLowry at the gunfight. And uh, other than that, it's all hearsay. It's all um, it's it's journalists making things up to sell papers. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Mary Doria Russell, author of five novels, including The Sparrow, A Thread of Grace, and Doc. How do you bring history to life? How do you take, you know, what you read that is more maybe two-dimensional and make it three-dimensional? A lot of that is uh, knowing enough about the characters to be able to empathize with them, you know, to say, all right, now I'm Ike Planton, and I know my history, and I know what this is like, and I know what the father was like, and I know what the brothers are like. I mean, it's what any novelist has to do. You have to empathize with your characters. You have to see the world with their eyes. You have to react with their emotions. 
knowing what they know and not knowing what they don't know. You know, you have to restrict your uh, imagination to what would would be available to them. Each each one of the characters is going to have their own worldview, their own childhood, their own politics, their own religion. You know, it's it's just going to be different for each one of them, and that's what's really interesting to me about it is getting getting outside my head and into somebody else's. What have you learned about writing in this process of going from just thinking you're writing a short story because you wanted to empathize more or figure out more why you liked books and not be so critical to today? One of the first things I learned, and, and, and it remained fundamental to, to what I do, when I get to the point where I just can't see my way further anymore, you know, it's like I'm just, I hit a wall. For me, almost always, the reason is that I need a, a different point of view. I, I very rarely enjoy first-person narratives. Uh, I like a lot of a lot of changes in point of view. I like uh, to get to something where you you completely accept one character's point of view, and then I like to see it co- from a completely different. What just happened from a completely different point of view. I also have learned that um, there's that uh, editing is just. I mean, it's not done until I've been over it probably 30 to 60 times, depending on the book. Well, can you read a brief passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Canticle for Leibowitz by Walter Miller was uh, published in 1959. The story of Canticle for Leibowitz um, just stuck with me for years, and um, it was a huge thrill when I was asked to write an introduction to the novel when it was reissued in, in 2006. So it, it, that book really stands the test of time, and reading it once a decade has been both instructive and rewarding. Um, throughout the book, Miller, uh, uh, it, and you can see how this connects with, with what I write, um, it, it, his attitude was that for all the external technical cultural changes that, that we go through as a species, the human condition changes very little. Uh, whether we're armed with bows and arrows or guns and sabers or atomic bombs, there's human conflict and destruction and death. It's all part of a cycle that, that nearly as unchanging as the laws of gravity. So um, the, the quote that I chose is uh, from the aftermath of yet another war. The buzzards strutted, preened, and quarreled over dinner. It was not properly cured, so they waited a few days for the wolves to have their fill. There was plenty for all. Finally, they ate, and afterwards, as always, the wild scavengers of the skies laid their eggs in season and lovingly fed their young. They soared high over prairies and mountains and plains, searching for the fulfillment of life's destiny that was theirs according to the plan of nature. Their philosophers demonstrated by unaided reason alone that the supreme turkey buzzard had created the world especially for them, and they worshipped him with hearty appetites century after century. I think that I must have been trying for a narrator with that same kind of distance irony when I started writing The Sparrow. I wasn't consciously aware of it at the time, but going back to A Canticle for Leibowitz, I went, yeah. It's compassionate. It takes a really strange point of view. It's the buzzards who think that God created, their God created the world for them because there's so many wars and there's always bodies for them. And it's elegant at the same time. So that's the narration that, that, uh, that I aspire to. 
Can you read a short passage from something you wrote? It could be something that was hard or tricky or something that changed or just something that you really like. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna read the uh, the opening invocation for um, Epitaph. Doc was the Odyssey, and um, uh, Epitaph is really the Iliad. Both of these books have been framed uh, in the the Homeric hero tradition. And so um, this passage is the absolute beginning, and I rewrite the first pages of my my books probably a hundred times. Sing, goddess of ruinous wrath, to understand the gunfight in Tombstone. Stop now and watch a clock for 30 seconds. Listen to it tick away one half of a single minute, and as it does, try to imagine 30 seconds. So terrible. They will pursue you all your life and far beyond the grave. Begin your half-minute with righteous confidence, though you stand six paces from armed and angry men. They have abused you. They have threatened your life. Your rage and fear are justified. They are in the wrong. You are within the law. About this, have no doubt. Two quiet clicks, a breathless instant, and the gunfire becomes deafening. When a sudden silence falls just 30 seconds later, men will lie bleeding on the ground, and the life you thought was yours will be over. Imagine. Your name is Earp or Holiday. Your name is Clanton or McLowry. Your name is Behan. Your name is Marcus or Blaylock or Haroni. You were in the middle of the gunfight. You watched, stunned by it. You heard the fusillade and thought, dear God, not my man. Please, God, not mine. Whatever your name, it will be blackened. Every flaw, every mistake held up for scrutiny, condemnation, ridicule. Your secrets made public. Your reputation twisted and sear as a blighted leaf. Why did you choose that passage to read? Because it sets the tone for the rest of the novel. You know, that these 30 seconds that the gunfight at the OK Corral has become entertainment for hundreds of millions around the world. There's a moment in, in the movie Gladiator where Maximus turns to the, to the crowd and says, Are you not entertained? You know? <laughs> it's sick that it becomes entertainment. And yet the use of this kind of crisis goes back to Greek drama. It's so much a part of our culture, and it has such deep history. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Mary Doria Russell, author of five novels, including The Sparrow, A Thread of Grace, and Doc. Where do you write? Uh, I have a, um, a room in the house that is a dedicated office. It has two windows, and it has uh, my library, and I can, and it's at, out at the edge of the household, so I can I can close doors and uh, really concentrate on what I'm doing. And what do you do, or where do you go to get away from writing? Back into the rest of the house. I leave this wing, and I I usually go get something to eat, and I sit down in front of the television. I watch HGTV. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Um, each of the books has had uh, two to three very early readers who are extraordinarily patient about rereading because I, I do a lot of editing as I go uh, and they stick with me from start to finish uh, there is some continuity from one book to the next but I usually pick up one or two uh, new people as I go some of them have just been fans that I uh, I either met at a book signing and went out for coffee with afterwards or they are people that, that contacted me by email and we had a, a really fun email exchange and I found what they said about prior books insightful and interesting and so uh, 
a relationship begins to develop. And um, at this point, uh, for Epitaph, the three frontline readers, my first readers, are all people that I met that way. How have you dealt with rejection? Well, because I've had one publisher for the first five books, the rejection was primarily at the very beginning. And I was trying to uh, get people interested in a novel that can be easily summed up as Jesuits in Space. And that was just too far, you know, that was just too strange sounding. The Sparrow was rejected 31 times, and uh, it, was a, it was a really long haul. But there was just enough reaction from people in publishing that encouraged me to keep trying. Uh, Mary Fiore was the managing editor of Good Housekeeping magazine. And uh, through a long, arcane, really convoluted uh, series of, of uh, connections, she got interested in the story and, and was helping me look for, um, for an agent. And she said right off the bat, she said, science fiction is hard to sell. Religious stuff is hard to sell. Religious science fiction is going to be a real bear. This is going to need uh, an agent who is really well-connected and really gutsy and creative. And if it does get published, it's going to win a lot of awards. <laughs> and she was right. It did, and again, it won it went a whole bunch of awards. What is your favorite word? Wonderful. I like that word because you can use it. It can be ironic or sarcastic or sincere. <laughs> so wonderful is really wonderful. And then there's wonderful. <laughs> sarcastic. And then, oh, wonderful. That's, that's ironic. It's, it's, it's an endlessly useful word. I like that one. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Mary Doria Russell, author of five novels, including The Sparrow, A Thread of Grace, and Doc. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.